Hi, welcome to the Rooted in Podcast. I'm Rita Savasco, and I am with Rooted in Language, and I'm here today talking to my friend, Maria Mingo. Maria and I have known each other now for, how long have you been married? 18 years. 18 years, so 18 years we were... Yeah, we were in a marriage ministry together early in your marriage, I believe. So we've probably known each other now maybe 15 years or so. It was on the onset of our marriage. Yeah, we got married and we're head into Building Blocks. Yes, so we were in a ministry together called Building Blocks for Marriage. I'm still in it. Maria's life has taken many turns and she's in all kinds of ministries now. But uh, I wanted her to, she and I ended up in a conversation uh, a few weeks ago, I had called her to see how she was doing. I wanted to, she and I have been working together and I was thinking about her with all that's going on in our country right now, with all of the racial turmoil and conversation. And I just wanted to reach out and say, how are you in the midst of all this and how are your kids doing? And we ended up in this great conversation and about having that conversation, right? <laughs> That's kind of interesting. And I, she said so many good things that I wanted to share it on our podcast. So I asked her to come and be with me. And I'll give you full disclosure here because it's really great. Marie and I have now had this conversation many times. <laughs> and, and, and one is because those of you who know Rooted in Language probably know that we are constant re, constantly relying on Claire Baker to help me with technology and we are distant now in our work and so i did a podcast with maria yesterday and did not record it so maria is so kind she's back again today to repeat our conversation for Three you times a charm <laughs> right. so maria why don't you tell everyone about yourself and why we are having this conversation and Okay. How we know each other and all that. Well, I'll start with a little background of myself. I am Maria. Been married for 18 years to my college sweetheart, Chuck. And we have three children. Our oldest is 11. Our middle, eight. And our youngest is six. Just turned six in April. And we moved to Cincinnati, Ohio from Pennsylvania. And... Yeah, been involved in our church, Crossroads, for me since 2002. And that's when we met, around the time we met in Building Blocks, which was a marriage ministry. Um, besides that, well, one of the things with our youngest, uh, she had some speech delays. And I reached out to Rita um, to help her along this process and to help me with her. And... Um, it has been tremendous. Just an example today, Chuck, my husband was working with her and he was praising her because her blending has gotten so much better. And we just, we see the fruits of our labor and all, we owe a lot of that to you and your program, Pinwheels. Um, we've been using that faithfully and it, we just have seen her progression in how, in her confidence um, in doing her work, uh, doing her work solo, sometimes without us, they're guiding her. Hey. Her yes, it's, it's really, it has been amazing. It really has. So it's interesting because we'll learn, we learn the letters. And when we got to B, that was early on, uh, one of the words she said began with that was boy. 
and she was concerned when G, when G was coming because girl, it's her, you know, it was, it was something that she could relate to. And so she is now looking forward to the work <laughs> that we do and the letters that we find. And she's so happy we got to G um, because it, 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 she identifies with that. So I love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've talked about that before, how she really sorts out family, she mm -hmm. little families mm -hmm. out of her toys. She does. She is really into family, and she will create family out of anything. It can be little animal figures. It can be her dolls. It can be, you know, characters that we see on a poster. She will, like, even if they're, in, like, if they're, um, let's say it's, flowers that have been caricaturized as humans <laughs> she will find where's the mom where's the dad and where's the brother and if one is missing you know she'll say oh you know my oldest brother isn't represented here or my you know so it's it's really fun to watch her her love of family and the unit yeah i love that i do remember my kids going through that stage i think i told you that we had these expensive someone had given us an expensive stuffed animal and there was a pink walrus and we were at a store and found another one and i child had to have the mommy daddy so i'm buying this expensive stuffed animal when my children already had you know 300 stuffed animals last thing i want is another one and then turns out we are back at that store and they had babies and then we have three kids so we had to have three of these little babies you know and it's like those things you just, you know you don't need it, you know it's a ridiculous amount of money, but you're so appreciative of the way they value family that you do it anyway. That's right, that's right, that's right. So, uh, so yeah, tell us a little more about yourself. Um, so, um, I am also a stay-at-home mom to our three kids. Um, when we started on this parenthood journey, I was, at the time, uh, Xavier University in the Montessori program. And we prayed about it and decided that if we were to become parents and if I was to become pregnant, that I would stay at home with our kids. And lo and behold, we were blessed to do that. And it's a full-time job. <laughs> it's is, it is probably one of the, I used to work in a pathology microbiology lab as a, when I was a science major, and that was a fulfilling and hard job, but being a mother is one of the hardest things I've ever done, and one of the most fulfilling um, roles I've had in my life. Um, so I, that's where I currently am. My husband, Chuck Mingo, is a community pastor at Crossroads Community Church in Cincinnati. He also is uh, branching out and starting a new role and it is called Undivided, and that is a racial reconciliation um, kind of program where he goes and he has groups of people um, of different backgrounds experience um, the history of racism um, from past to present. And he will do it in church organizations, he will do it in business arenas, um, and so he, God has really led him to do that full reign. He has jumped in um, feet first, and we are, as, as a family on mission, also going towards that. Um, and so that looks like, you know, supporting dad, um, talking about his work, what does that mean? And we do it 
in a way that our children who are school age can understand. And there are all, always examples. Last night we had our an early Father's Day dinner and Chuck was getting some calls that he really needed to address. And he walked away from the table and he you know, told me he was going. And so what I did with my oldest, who's 11, I said to him, I said, it is not a negative that dad is walking away during dinner and taking time to receive this call. I said, your dad is a leader in our community and he is a leader in what's going on in our world. And we are here to support him. And he is still spending time with us and also doing this work. Um, he's not leaving us. So I tried to put words, um, some positive words around what his dad is doing and why he's leaving and his and the reason for his absence. And to let him know that there are just small moments that he's leaving, but he's doing such a big thing. Mm-hmm. And knowing Chuck, you know, I mean, other people don't know Chuck, but as I do, but, you know, he's all in for his kids. He is yeah. not someone who would walk away. Mm-hmm easily yeah Yeah, he was he was very apologetic about walking away Mm -hmm. and so i wanted him to hear and our oldest to hear what you're doing you do not need to be sorry about you do not need to apologize for because it's a huge thing you're doing a huge impact you're going to make in our world and for our children and so you keep running for that and we're going to be running right alongside you Mm -hmm. Um, so i wanted to make sure that he knew that and I always try to find moments where I can build into him and encourage him because it's tough work. You know, talking about racial matters um, is tough. It's, it's a hard topic for people. It's uncomfortable. Um, but we want to make it, and what he's striving for is to make it not uncomfortable anymore, to normalize it, to make it um, so that people have tools in their, you know, mind to um, be able to talk about these things in a way where it's, it's just, it's normal to talk about it and it becomes something that um, we can share with others and feel comfortable, you know, discussing these things. Right. It's interesting. um, You and I had just said, you know, uh, this idea of normalizing and I had made the comment that if you see a my family picture, you see, all whites and you see the most diverse looking people is I have a son-in-law and daughter-in-law are both blonde hair, blue eyes, right? That's the most diversity. And you had made a comment about the diversity in Chuck's family and the diversity in your family and the diversity in your, you and Chuck's family, right? So you want to share a little of that because it's interesting to Chuck's mission, I think. Yes. Yeah. And this so, idea of normalizing, right? And yeah. your kids' lives is yeah. this. They don't even know it needs to be normalized, maybe. You know? That's right. They don't because it's, it just is. You know, we, when we want to, uh, just a side note, when we wake up, we don't look in the mirror and say, oh, I'm brown today. It just is. It's not, it's not something that we think about. And so when we incorporate those type of elements in our life, they just are. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not, you know, we don't have to work at that. Um, But, you know, growing up as a kid in Pennsylvania on the East Coast, we had so much diversity within our household. Um, I I told you a story where I remember my mom having this white friend, Lucy, who was 
boisterous. Um, she, she would have big hair. She was talkative um, and she was white. And, you know, we would have cousins, black and Puerto Rican coming over. And it was, it was, it just was. Um, and so when I came to Cincinnati, um, it was a year after there were riots um, here. And I could feel the racial tension and I could see it. And it was bizarre to me. It was bizarre that everything was so black and white. And that was 2001, 2002. Um, and so I made it definite mission without knowing that we will diversify our group of friends, diversify where we eat, diverse as much as I can. And it had, because it was Cincinnati, it had to be intentional. So I had to be intentional when there was a time when I didn't have to be intentional because it was so pervasive and it was such a norm. Um, so that was definitely a catalyst for me. Having children was a, was a catalyst to be more intentional on who we surrounded ourselves with. And, you know, one of the hardest things was when we went to Crossroads, it was pure white when we first started going there. We brought the color. Um, you know, we had a meeting one time with the head pastor at his house, and we were the only people of color there. And, you know, I had said to myself, I need to make sure that when I get a job, it has nothing to do with this church. Where I go to shop, it has nothing to do with this church because I needed to broad. It was safe to stay, stay in that space mm -hmm. um, and not go out of the bubble that was being created. Um, so I was intentional about, you know, the friends I made, um, going to Xavier, meeting new people that didn't look like me, um, that were from, you know, different backgrounds, cultural religious um, because I wanted to be able not only to learn their story, but so they could hear my story. Um, there were many times where I met someone and I was the first Latina that they had ever met. I mean, it's just mind blowing to me in the 2000 that that was the case. Um, and so I would, so ways we would do that would, I'd invite them to my home. I would make them, Puerto Rican dishes, you know, so they could try different foods and we can talk about it. And um, so that, you know, the kitchen is the heart of the home. And that's one of the things my mom instilled in me. And so it was an easy gateway to access to who I was um, as not just a person, but as a Puerto Rican woman. Um, come on in, come try some of this new food that you've never had before. And um, to this day, this that's some of the things we do. And so when we, um, as a family make meals for people, I try to incorporate, you know, Spanish dishes. Um, I know one time I made for you guys Mexican soup and Rick, Rick wanted that recipe. <laughs> and so I, I gladly shared that. And so it's, it's one of the easiest things you could do is through food, you know, because it's safe. Um, so <laughs> I know and you know it is funny too how you you want to give a little of yourself you know so often I would make sauce and meatballs for people you know yeah. just you you feel like it's this way you kind of bring you know a little bit of your own story to yeah. the meal right you don't 
and 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 for in some ways it's because it's easy because it's what you grew up making mm -hmm. that's part of it and part of it is because of exactly what you said you just kind of want to not that sauce and meatballs is anything everyone has tasted that right <laughs> um it's not like people go oh this is what italian is it's not quite the same <laughs> i realize but um I don't know. It is it is interesting. We all have these little pieces of ourselves. So you actually brought diversity to Chuck's family. Mm -hmm. oh, I think yeah. that's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember we went to a family reunion, um, the young family reunion, and it was summertime. We had no children at the time, so this was um, maybe we, were, we had been married two, two, three years maybe when we they decided to do one of the family reunions. And I walked in and I said, oh my goodness, everyone here is black but me. <laughs> and I said, I'm, I bring the spice to the life, huh? <laughs> and, you know, but I never felt, um, you know, I never felt like they viewed me any differently. Um, obviously being Chuck's wife, they fully embraced me um, as part of their family. But I made, I made a note, I made a comment to Chuck when we were alone. Hey, did you ever realize or see, notice? And he was like, you're right. We do not have <laughs> diversity in our family. Um, and so we definitely, as a unit, bring that. I mean, definitely now that we have children, we've added. So <laughs> um, it, it is part of our problem, isn't it? Mm -hmm. we, we, I love the name Undivided because you don't know how to fix it, really. Mm -hmm. you, know? Um, you know, I happen to live in an area that was very white uh, in truth probably a huge part of white flight in the 60s we weren't here then um we had come from dc at the time we lived in an area um uh that probably had originally been part of white flight too outside of dc but our neighborhood was extremely diverse in terms of black brown white okay a lot of a big Indian population um, and not as much uh, um, Latino population. I don't know why, just not in that neighborhood. Um, but then we moved to Mason, which I think had been historically part of the white flight. And initially I felt like, oh my goodness, like what did we do? I felt very uncomfortable because I had come from a more diverse neighborhood my kids were out playing with kids who did not look like them, right? And all of a sudden, we were at the swimming pool and we were the darkest people there, right? You know, because <laughs> we had brown hair <laughs> and, and we tan really well, <laughs> right? And, uh, and then now Mason has this huge Asian, Indian, growing Latino population, growing Muslim population and Middle Eastern population. And so it's really changing. And so fortunately for us, our schools got to look more diverse than I think. I just was thinking, oh, what's a good school system? Mm -hmm. I wasn't, because I had at that point in my life lived in an area where a good school system might still be very diverse. I didn't stop and think, oh, I'm now in a place where a good school system, I'm using little hand quotes here, also could be very white, you know, until I got here. And fortunately for me, it was in the process of changing. So, 
fortunately for my kids, I should say, mm -hmm. right? So your kids, normalcy, back to our conversation, which is about conversations with our kids, right? That's what I actually wanted us to kind of get to, conversations with each other, conversations with our kids about this issue of race. Um, I had asked you the question, I don't know if you're ready for this now, but I had asked you the question, um, how are you talking to your kids right now? Is it difficult right now to be talking to your kids about what's going on? Um, so we have always talked about race, our culture, the way we talk about God and Jesus. It is just a fabric, part of the fabric of who we are. Um, and so we've instilled in them the love of Jesus, his story, what happened, what it means to be a Christ follower. And we also instill in them pride of who they are, their Latino heritage, their black culture heritage. And it's, that's where the normalcy, normalcy lies within us. Um, and so we have books that have characters that look like them. We listen to music that I remember listening to when I was a little girl. And we go to restaurants that have food that is different. Um, so those are the things that we've always done. Uh, it got harder in Cincinnati. It wasn't as accessible as it was on the East Coast. So I had to be very intentional on where we went to eat, um, what we went to look at, what we listened to. Very intentional about that. Um, one of the things we went, we would take the kids to different restaurants and we took them to an Ethiopian restaurant where you had to eat with your hands because they have a special bread that you wrap the food with. And um, we did wash our hands before. And for families that are not comfortable with that, there are utensils. But we discussed it. There are people that look different than you. They eat different foods. But this is yummy. Or this is good. Let's try this. What spice did they use here? How do you think they cook this? Um, and then we, we, it's a dialogue that is ongoing. And we just find little things like that to talk about. So in the current events in the state of our world now, um, we are very general in how we say and what we say is happening. It's mostly the conversations we're having with our oldest. Um, our six-year-old, I think it would be too much for her. Um, and our eight-year-old is very self-centric. So <laughs> he's worried about himself and the next thing that he can create, build, destroy. <laughs> so we don't really have um, uh, the big pick. We, you know, the, the more um, mm -hmm. specific conversations with those two. Now with our oldest, we take him aside when the other two are asleep or if they're reading, we have the conversations, dad, mom, and, and him. And so we tell him, you know, this is what's happening. Um, and very broad in our statements. We have friends that are police officers. Uh, we have friends that are lawyers. We have friends that just run the gamut of different roles in life. And so we talk about those people um, in a very personal way. And so um, we try not to make generalizations and we tell them what hurts us um, because it hurts us to see this happening. We have sons and it is concerning. 
And um, when we're sharing this with him, there are moments where we become vulnerable and we cry because everyone should cry that lives are being taken like this. And as a mother of a son, I can put myself in, you know, the mother of, of the, the adults that are being taken like this. Um, and so that's how we speak to him about it. And so he has seen us both angry about what's going on, um, both upset about what's going on, but also hopeful about the work that we are trying to do um, to educate people around um, different um, spectrums of where they are, who they are in the humanness of loving others who don't look like you. Um, one of the things with our oldest, I was in a car with him driving and we were driving through Madeira, who is heavily white populated. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how I got on the topic of protesting and what that was and why people do it. Um, you know, I try to be very strategic in how I use it. I try to um, just define what the thing is and not make generalizations um, about it. And so we're driving through and to my right on the a main section, it's a corner, I believe where the library and the fire station were, we saw at least a hundred people or more kneeling um, with signs. Most of them were white. And I was like, thank you, God, that you presented this illustration to me at this moment that I was talking to my son about it because he doesn't watch the news um, and I would not let him watch the news. And so he got to visually see what a protest looks, what a peaceful protest looks like. But one of the things I wasn't ready for was he saw someone holding a sign that said, I can't breathe. How awful. And um, I had to tell him what that meant and why they were holding that um, so that, you know, he would know and not hear it from someone else. Right. And so it's, while it's heart-wrenching work, it's very um, critical and vital that I am his first educator in that, and that um, his dad is his first educator in that, so that when he's out there and that he sees injustice, or hears injustice, he has um, tools to be able to speak into that. Um, uh, obviously from a Christ-centered perspective, uh, from a loving perspective, but also from um, the perspective that he knows who he is, not only in Christ, but as a black and Latino male, um, and share that with, with with his friends, with his peers, with his teachers, um, because he's had, he's had opportunities to do that. You know, I think it's, it's so hard when our kids are getting old enough to see what's wrong in the world. Oh yeah. 
and scary. And it's, and I was just thinking as you were talking about that, how I have memories of having to have some conversations about reality <laughs> and, um, and feeling so, um, you know, sad that my kids were having to enter that time. I feel like I remember that myself. Um, and yet I had not really stopped until that moment. Cause you know, I am who I am no matter how hard I try. <laughs> um, I hadn't really stopped to think at that moment how much harder it is to say that to your son mm -hmm. who potentially looks, mm -hmm. you know, like the victims, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I did worry more about my son, I will say. I think young males being stopped by police always feels a little more scary than young females. I mean... I think we think of different circumstances as being more vulnerable for our kids in different situations, but, but I wouldn't have had that experience that you had with your son. And, you know, Ch Chuck grew up in Philadelphia and he was taught at a very early age. When you get pulled over, you have your hands at nine and three, you are yes, sir, no, sir. You describe everything you're going to do with detail. You know, when they ask for your registration, you preface it by saying, officer, I'm going to lean forward and I'm going to go into my glove box and retrieve, you know, my papers. And, and I mean, talking, it sounds bizarre, but you narrate the whole entire thing. And so he grew up with that. And you know, those are the stories we share with our children, you know, when, when you get pulled over, these are the things you do. You don't argue back. You don't, you know, we will, if something has gone wrong or you feel that you've been wronged in any way, you just wait till they leave. You call us and we will call whoever needs to be called, you know, in that moment. Um, but don't, you know, don't give any you know, room for error on uh, your part, uh, unbeknownst to you, to the officer that is pulling you over. Um, and so we've even had to relook how we deliver that, you know, because I don't want to instill in them a fear of police authority. I don't want to give them, you know, prejudice against white officers because we know that that is not the case with all officers. Um, and so we've had gut checks within ourselves on how are we delivering this information to our son to make him aware, prepared, but not instill fear and not cause you know, biases to be rooted into him um, because of our experiences. Um, so that's, you know, yeah, we have a friend, Don, who's a, He's a black male police officer. And uh, our sons have known each other since they were three months old. Oh, wow. And they are now, they will be 12. Um, and so him and his wife, they come to our house. Um, a lot of times we have a lot of traditions with them, you know, for holidays. And we have those conversations in our home, in earshot of our sons, so that they can hear us dialoguing about it. Um, and, you know, hear his perspective and instill in them yes don is a police officer 
and yes, we love him, not because of, you know, him being an out, you know, upstanding police officer, but because of who he is, the character of person he is. Yeah. Um, so that's what we try to focus on, the character of a person, and that is colorless. Um, right. So and, and, you know, in every, on every side, there are going to be sincere characters. Yes. And, you know, troublemakers yes. and angry people who are just taking this opportunity and, you know, right. And, and you're right. I think you can't get there if there's not relationship. Mm -hmm. Yes. Otherwise it's just us and them mm -hmm. or police versus rioters mm -hmm. or whatever. Right. Um, you're, you're not, and, and and it's good, I think, to limit what we see because a lot of what we see is really from both sides setting us up to feel like we understand the big picture when we don't, mm -hmm. right? I think that's, and, and, and the big picture is always going, it feels like the big picture is always going to happen in small ways, right? It's always going to be these communities of people who interact with each other. It's conversation, right? It's, we talked about that a little bit about, you had said something really great about pausing. <laughs> I had kind of asked, you know, like, I, you know, I, I, I've been having conversations with my students. What does this mean for me? How should I react? And I've found that a lot of my students feel, um, if they're white, they feel like I'm kind of afraid to say something because I'm very afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing and offend someone. So now I kind of don't know what to say. Like, obviously, I don't like this, but I don't know what to say. I'm afraid. And I don't want to be pigeonholed. I want to be able to say what I think without being pigeonholed. And, and I had kind of talked to you about how my students were feeling that. And so... I think to, that's a hurdle um, that we need to come across or over the fear of saying the wrong thing, not saying the right thing. Um, and that will happen if you have relationship equity. And so what that means is get, um, get yourself educated on people of other cultures, um, people that don't look like you, and that may be as simple as going to the library and taking out books. Um, and, and, and one of the things I talked about is we ha you have to start all the way from the beginning. And so you have to be educated on the historical context of the enslaved. But don't leave it there. That's the, that's the negative side of it. Um, but the positive side of that is that you will be informed. Um, and you'll learn things that you didn't know. Um, for me, growing up in the public school system, that the, we were not taught those things. And so it wasn't until I got into college where I wanted to learn more that I sought that out. And so I went to specific you know, classes. I looked on the syllabus and I wanted classes that had to do with black history. And so whatever course was given, that's what I signed up for. But you know, it, it's sad to think I had to wait to college until that happened. Um, and so learning, doing your research, 
um, as a parent, and if you're homeschooling or, or not, you know, you want to be alongside your child in any educational venue that you choose. Let's say you're learning about the frog and the life cycle of the frog, okay? You don't stop at um, the life cycle of one frog and then you comprehend everything. You want to move on. What other habitats are there? What other species are there? Where, where are they located in, in relation to the map, in the global perspective? It's kind of the same thing about finding about race. Um, so go to your library, start doing the research. Um, change some of the books that you read uh, with school-age children. Look for characters that don't look like you. Um, and one of the things you do when you're reading with your child, um, and let's say it's a story about a dad and a child, he happens to be black. So one of the things I would suggest to do is say, um, look at this daddy, he's playing with this little girl, and it's kind of like when dad plays with you. Um, that brings normalcy when you use dialogue like that, instead of saying, look at this black daddy, with this black girl and they're playing a game, you know what I mean? Cause it's playing with your dad is not race specific. <laughs> and so changing the terminology on how you describe color, um, you know, not saying the white skin is normal, but someone of brown color, you know what? They have more melanin in their skin. Go more scientific with your description. Um, and that you have to learn about that, you know, we have less melanin, they have more melanin, and you can go into that, you know, scientific terminology, but doing that research. Um, that's what, you know, the places you visit, you know, locally, we have the Cincinnati Art Museum that we can go to and you can pick an artist that is of color, whether they're Latino or black or Asian, you can pick a piece of work that maybe depicts a different culture and do research into that with your children. Even if you don't um, talk specific specificity around race, maybe the type of style that was used. Um, how is that different from this type of style? Um, we have the CAC, the Contemporary Art Museum. We also have the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center. Um, is a place in Cincinnati and that's based on the history of the Underground Railroad Freedom Center, Freedom um, that happened and Ohio was um, very pivotal in that movement. Um, so the Ohio River, right? Yeah, because of the Ohio River. Mm -hmm. And so I did a, just a quick Google search and I came up with, I'm gonna share this. It was blackmuseums.org. You can go on there and it has a list all the states in the U.S. that have some museum that is specific with Black history, Black culture. Um, I was looking it up and I found one that was specific to the Civil War and its subject matter was Black and Hispanic. I've never seen anything on, on Hispanic culture in the city. Never. So, and it's in DC. I think it's in DC. And so I told my husband, I said, oh, we're making a field trip, you know, when, when this is over. That's another thing. Just have field trips. We have, you know, field trips to the zoo. Have a field trip to a museum that you've never been to um, because 
one of the important things as parents, our children uh, watch not only what we say, but what we do. And so we have to be the ones to guide them through that. So, you know, they have to see us reading the materials. They have to see us investing in time to want to learn, to change some of the biases that have been instilled in us at a very early age. Um, there has been research that children know about and can distinguish racial identity as young as three years old. Um, and how do they learn that? from their parents. It's not something that is innately instilled in them. They will see it, you know, if they, you know, go to where they live in their neighborhood, who lives around them, um, the, the place of worship, who are the people that are there, their physicians, what do they look like? Um, kids notice all of that. And those are the, the filters that they start seeing their world through. And so we have to be intentional about diversifying that, you know, and I'm not just talking skin color while this is very important. Um, and this is why we're speaking to each other, but even gender, you know, I'm, I made sure that our pediatrician, which was hard to find in Cincinnati, Ohio, <laughs> he is from Panama. He's Asian, speaks Spanish. He's, uh, he majored in heart, he's a heart surgeon. Um, he's a pediatrician. And so I was like, yes, sign us up. But he had female um, doctors there as well. That was very important to me. So we had, you know, I don't want to mention her name. Uh, and she was white. She was from New York and moved to Cincinnati. Absolutely loved her. Absolutely loved it because she brought what I like to say the East Coast flavor <laughs> to Cincinnati, and um, and and then he had another uh, physician there. She's black, and she actually lived in our neighborhood. Um, and so we see her outside of the office. We see her walking her dog. You know, so that's it's just being intentional with your sphere. Of By the way. I just want to say you're not in the ritzy neighborhood. I mean, no, 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 no. <laughs> You have a physician in your neighborhood. Oh, now we get it, right? That's right, yeah. No, it's in a very normal neighborhood, yeah. Yes, yes. And it's interesting where we live. It's, um, we are in the middle of a very uh, heavily populated Jewish neighborhood. Yeah, you are. And black and white neighborhood. So we in of its of, of ourselves are a rarity because we, we're not even in the Latino neighborhood, which is hard to find in Cincinnati as well. Mm -hmm. But you know, we have, so, so, so we're very blessed to be where we are um, and be able to, we share the gospel so much with our neighbors and have so many open discussions and our kids are there to witness that. And that's, that's us building relational equity in that, um, yeah. even within our immediate, you know, vicinity of who we um, do life with. Right. Right. And, and that is the interesting thing about Chuck's um, mission with Undivided, because it is a lot of getting people of different races from different churches and different uh, backgrounds to sit down together and have conversations about the stuff that's hard to talk about. And you had made a comment before, right? We always say, don't talk about politics, religion, or race, right? These are the things, right? Like that's what we've all learned. And yet the mission in that is both talking about 
two of those mm -hmm. and probably ends up hitting on the third, right? You're talking yeah. about religion yeah. and race. And so it made me, you know, from the round two of our podcast, go back and look up um, a news article, USA Today had interviewed Chuck um, in, ironically, in June, yeah. two years ago, yes. June of 2018, um, USA Today. And it was like a, it was a big picture. I was like, we, we picked up the newspaper and there was a big picture of Chuck, right? We were like, hey, we know that guy, right? And uh, I, it was kind of a disturbing article because what they did is they actually talked about the how Christianity has had this stain. They even used the words. It has been, quote, stained by the justification and endorsement of slavery. The Christianity. Christianity has been stained by lots of things if you go back enough decades. And of course, those of us who are Christians would say, well, Christ was never about any of those things. But in this article, they actually have Chuck, whose mission, Undivided, is to get people sitting down, talking, building relational equity, changing how we think and feel one conversation at a time, right? And, and there, by contrast, they had a uh, man who is a leader of a church, white male, that was, uh, had a real agenda of... Um, white supremacy and was using the church platform mm -hmm. for that. Mm -hmm. And, and what was interesting is in the article, they said most churches, they kind of even said, we're almost showing you two extremes, the church that's really trying to get conversation. And then this church that's like, we don't want any conversation. We just want to be white supremacist. Right. And they said, most churches are just asking themselves, quote, they are asking, how should they speak about race at all? Mm. And I thought, wow, here we are two years later. Mm -hmm. How should we speak about race? Right? How should we speak to our kids about race? How should we speak to just, each other? Just jump in. That's, you know, it's, we can't be fearful anymore. We, we, we don't have that privilege to be fearful anymore. And I'm talking about are the human race on, on what we say and how we say it. Be it now, all be it said, it should be in a loving way. We should want to empathize with one another. And I think that is Jesus's story. Um, so one of the things of the mission of Undivided is it's almost having these tough hard conversations in a controlled space. And so what I mean by that is that tools are provided and you are guided through a small group process where you are, you're, you're mixed in a group, you know, racially, try to be racially diverse and having a facilitator and having these questions prompted um, to have conversations that you've always wanted to have and while there, there is, so I've gone through obviously the program and there is a moment where as a person of color, you're just tired of being the educator of all things black and brown. And you want people to wake up to be able to see what you've always seen your whole life. But then there's another part 
where, you know, God is, is prompting you in your heart that this is a message that needs to be given um, and we can do it in a loving way and have um, empathy for one another and grace for one another to be able to hard, ask the hard questions um, and to be able to hear hard answers. Um, and so it's something that you do in a concentrated group over, I believe it's six weeks and you grow in your relational equity with the people that you're in because there's consistency as well. And there are moments where you do things outside of that as a group, you know, and, and things simple as going to dinner together, you know, breaking bread with someone who doesn't look like you, um, but shares the same values as you, but you wouldn't know because you never crossed the line to try to find out. Um, doing a service project together. You know, we all want to give to others um, in, in various ways, whether you serve to feed the homeless, whether you make um, care packages um, for soldiers, you know, whether you, one of the things we did was we would actually make these meal packets for families in Africa and we would do it in our church. Mm -hmm but we'd serve alongside people that didn't look like this. So in that moment, and one of the things we got to do is we got to take a bag home to actually eat the meal we were preparing. So, it, you know, you get tangible things to do with one another that will start conversations, um, as I like to call conversation starters, with using tactile things. Um, and so that's another way to do it, but it doesn't just happen solely on dialogue. And having conversation while that is a huge component of it we have to do life with one another and those are you know i don't want to say it but those are safe ways to do it um and if that's how people need to start you know it's like when you're riding a bike as a child you get those training wheels on and it's not until you're super comfortable where you're going to take it off and your mom or dad they're behind you and they're you know encouraging you on and they push you off and then you don't even realize that they've let go but you're riding the bike on your own if those are the steps that people need to take to become racially aware then by all means i'm a proponent of it and so you know start serving somewhere where you've never served um, meet people that you've never met and within that um, environment befriend someone who doesn't look and start slowly like that meet them for coffee you know everyone loves coffee or tea they always serve water. That's enough, you know. And so, you know, just have those conversations and give yourself grace in and humble yourself with the other person. And you know, in the it might sound mechanical um, in the beginning, but if you lay this platform out and say, "Hey, I really want to know more about you," I may say something that offends you. Um, please stop me in that moment maybe say, hey, that, that kind of hurt me. This is why. And be open for change. Be open to uh, restate your question and not shut down because you feel like you've been offensive. Um, if you're open for that, that's, that's definitely a way to um, bring normalcy to the racial differences that we have.
but you have you have to be open for that you have to humble yourself you have to give grace not only to the other person but to yourself and it's okay to um, stumble with your words because it's not something that you've done on a regular basis um, it's okay not to have all the answers as well um, and continue to, to do the research you know continue to want to be more learned on the subject matter and um, put your heart into that and yeah just. and we all have to give each other that grace right I mean um, you have to give me grace if I'm trying to express myself and I say something that makes you cringe mm -hmm. right I have to give you grace if you're leading down a path that makes me think, but what about this? Right. Um, you know, which is what, what happens and, and it, it impedes conversation. It's interesting. Just <laughs> it's so, so I am a baby boomer and of course my adult children, you know, will do the okay boomer sarcasm which is ageism by the way and um, and uh so i was having this conversation with my daughter and son-in-law and they were telling me about what it means to be woke you know you really know this you really know that if you're very aware of all the you know sins of humanity and how you should be talking then you're woke right and i was saying you know just the fact kind of they're, they're almost in this effort to be woke, mm -hmm. you also have created a divide mm -hmm. that doesn't allow anyone who isn't woke mm -hmm. to join you. I'm doing air quotes all over creation for those of you who can't see me, to be able to enter in this conversation because now I gotta worry that I'm not gonna be woke, right? You know, and, and I think sometimes our efforts to be inclusive actually can close doors, mm -hmm. right? And such that, and I had shared this with you, I, one of my students that I was talking to, I realized in the middle of our conversation, he couldn't, he, he, he did not know how to refer to the black race. And so he would say, he kept like stumbling around. And finally I said, it seems like you're having a hard time saying black. Like he would say white not white you know i mean and not white's okay it's not that that's bad but i could just really see, see literally because we were on zoom the discomfort and he said yeah he said i was told that i should only my whole life i feel like i was told i should only say african-american but you're saying black and so that i don't like know what to say and i thought well how sad that is actually and wouldn't that be a great conversation for him to have? So turns out he has a good buddy who is black. So I said, why don't you have that conversation with him? Tell him. I feel now like I don't know what to do. And, and see where that conversation leads. That's okay. I think you need to have that kind of conversation, right? And for him, you know, when you shared that story, I thought, he it hasn't been normalized for him it hasn't it hasn't been normalized and how hasn't it been normalized well what has he read um what books has he read about people of color and are the books that he's reading you know books only on enslavement and the struggle and books that have words that were derogatory and so now 
everything must be derogatory. Um, normalizing it for him is giving him experiences outside of what he's used to. And so, you, you know, the library is such a, a great free resource um, to go look up Black lives, look up Black history, look up a cookbook written by a Black chef. Like, those are safe things. Hey, Black people cook. <laughs> yes, they do, because they're people. So, you know, when, when you can um, say people cook instead of white people cook, Black people cook, um, obviously still be um, cognizant of the race of each individual, but not pigeonhole it into that specific category. That normalizes it for him. That will normalize it for him. The books, you know, young adult reading, um, I know they have out there, um, you know, Christian authors, black Christian authors, non-Christian authors um, that are people of color. And he can read one of those books and insert himself into that story because the only difference would be color. That's how it normalizes him. And one, you know, one of the things that we do as parents when our oldest is assigned reading material, I read those books with him. And in reading that, I not only get to know the content of what he's reading, but it enables me, it gives me a tool to open discussion about what he's reading. Um, so he's, re he's reading books on uh, Indian culture and uh, what does it look like over there. And so I tie that into some of the serving opportunities we have our, at our church where we fight the sex trade industry, which is huge in India. Mm -hmm. And some of that subject matter was spoken about in the books, but in a very... Um, uh, in a very clean way because of his age. Mm -hmm. But I tell him in a broader sense, what does that look like? Uh, what are we doing to combat, combat that as Christians? Because we love those children. And so that's one of the other things is having that parental involvement and also be interested in the things they are interested in and bringing it back to real life, bringing it back to real situations. That's not just as, while this is a novel, it is based on truths. Here are the truths. Let's talk about those truths. And guess what? Mommy does not have all the answers. So I'm going to do more research and we're going to talk about it more. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so I am also humbling myself, giving myself grace. And you know what? I may have said that wrong or I may have said that incorrectly. I didn't have all the data. Let me, let me go do some more research. Let us do more research together. Um, and come alongside that. And, you know, let's go. There's lots of Indian restaurants in Cincinnati. Let's go order some food. From, you know, if, if you've never done it before and you don't feel comfortable, order takeout. You know, if you don't want to go into the restaurant, um, order the takeout, eat it at home. That way you don't feel like you may offend someone with if you don't like the flavors, but talk to your children about the flavors. If you have the spices in your cabinet, bring them out so that they can see, oh, mommy uses this same spice that they use in a different way. And this is how they get that flavor. This is how I get my flavor. So that's one of the things, you know, I, I had shared before food and the kitchen are huge, um, 
huge uh, open friendly spaces for us and that's one of the things we do in sharing our culture and it's an easy way to open the horizon for your children to think about things in a bigger in a bigger sense in a global perspective it's a, it's a safe you know way to do it i know people are trying to find ways that are that are safe and not offensive um that's that's one of the ways to do it um and encouraging him to um, invest more in his relationship with his male friend um, and say hey you know what you can talk to him about race topics um, and maybe you preface it by saying you know hey dude you know i may say something that hurts your feelings please tell me um, or um, i don't know much about this and i really want to learn more can you share about this i know you don't have all the answers you know, and that's the other thing is not every not every person of color is a is an encyclopedia to the world of color. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so like, that's the other thing, you know. You also have you know, as as a white person, you also have to do the research um, outside of just meeting one person. You right. can't um, or you shouldn't um, put the burden on that person to be the answer to all things. Um, because your relational status is, is void. You know, you're just looking at them as a as an info getter, um, not as a, you know a friend, a friendship to build. Right. Right. So yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, and you know, I, I think we have to be like honest with our kids too about our own. If we are always truly digging into ourselves, what's inside, you know. To say, you know, I get, I can get this kind of reaction point around a lot of feminist mm -hmm. issues, and and I, I can be pretty strong about that, and in my home, right? Because it's kind of like who I am, and here I am in my home, right? And so there have been times, you know, where I've said something, and I think. Yeah, that was really me and my stuff and my baggage, right? And I really, that's not really the way I want my kids to say it, to present it, to react to it. Um, or you'll hear your kids do something and say something and you think, man, I got to take responsibility for that, right? Because the truth is, in our lives we're not doing everything perfectly our kids are getting the good and bad from us that's the reality of parenting right and um you know there are things that yeah you could you could call me a hypocrite on that one because i really i really dropped the ball there you know and i think i think it's important to have those kinds of conversations too mm -hmm. you know our kids need to know we're real they need to know we're growing we're changing they need to know this is hard for me. You know, I'd shared with you a situation that was around feminism that is hard for me. It's just hard for me. And and it 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 pays to say, this is hard for me and here's why. That's a point of growth. Even though I'm maybe not on the same page as you, I have taken ownership in examining whether everything I think is fair. And, and, and how much of it has been what I decided years ago was the situation, you know? You had um, 
you asked me to talk about the pausing in yeah. conversations and I'm not sure I touched on that. So if I didn't, I'm going to now, if I did apologies, it's, I'm just going to reiterate, but, um, when having conversations, I know growing up in a household of Latinos, we wanted to be heard. And so we're speaking, uh, you know, louder than the next person or more, you know, we're not allowing for what I like to call the pause in between. And that's something I've had, I've had to learn uh, when talking with someone about, you know, a tough subject matter or not tough subject matter. You just want to hear about their day. Giving a pause is so crucial because it shows the other person that you're really truly listening. It allows room for you to reflect and empathize on what you've heard and what they've said. Um, and your emotion, um, if it, if you're, when you're talking racial matters, it can be very emotional heavy um, in that moment. The pause gives you time to take a breath, and maybe not speak out of that emotion um, directly, but to speak out of an empathetic, loving heart towards what was said. It's important to um, what I've learned in, in listening classes is to reiterate what you heard from the other person to make sure that what they shared is what you heard because sometimes we have our own biases our own um, experiences and so when we hear something we funnel and filter it through that um, and so one of the safe things to do is say to them i heard you say this this and that or is this what you meant and what you're doing is you're asking for clarification and you're also letting them know I am listening to you intently and I want to make sure that you know that you've been heard before I give you my opinion or before I give you my advice um, on, on the matter. And I tell you what, that just doing that thing helps tremendously. And I'm not only talking um, in relationships of people that don't look like you, but in your marriage, that helps. Um, as a parent, talking to your kids mm. gives them, you know, an opportunity to know this person is really listening to me. This person really cares about me and really wants to know more on who I am and what I'm sharing with them. And the pause is, it, while it's, it sounds like it's an easy thing. It's a hard thing to do <laughs> because you want to make sure that you get heard. And there may be moments where you feel like you need to defend yourself um, or defend the subject matter or defend what was said. And we focus so much attention on that, that we forget the underlying reason why we're even having conversations with people. It's to build that re relational equity with them. It's to build, um, a foundation of trust with them and by allowing for that pause um, you do that you're showing them that I am someone who is trustworthy I am someone who is listening and I am someone who cares for you and what you're going through well said very well said and I struggle with that terribly 
um, you and I had shared, you know, that, uh, you know, the Italian culture is everybody talking at once and the loudest one maybe gets heard, but actually nobody's listening because they're all talking. Right? Exactly. And, and, you know, again, that's a generalization I realize, but it really, you know, creates for lively fun. It also creates for some pretty emotional outbursts mm -hmm. because, you know, now all of a sudden what was a conversation became an argument or something like that. And I feel like I've spent my whole lifetime trying to learn to be a better listener and not be just ready for the next thing I want to say. Well, our culture perpetuates that, you know, the American culture perpetuates, um, if I have an idea, I want to say it, I'm going to say it how I want to say it, regardless. Um, if I want to do something, I'm going to do it regardless, you know, because it's about me. And so that's something that's perpetuated. And if you don't uh, run for that, or if you don't lead with that, then you may be considered weak. You may be considered, you know, you may be the last person picked, you know, to play tag, and that, that sort of thing. Um, and so you're right. It's not, you know, the other side of if you're in you know a family like we grew up um, you start to think well i'm not gonna share what i wanted to share because they're gonna overpower me they're gonna say what i said was dumb they're not gonna listen to me and so that can infiltrate into your life outside of that um and so you know what what i had to do was i literally took classes that taught me how to listen and taught me how to you know uh, hear other people in in building blocks one of the you know you use different techniques and different variations of things to to enable you and i'm a tactile learner and one of the things they suggested was it's called the potholder technique and you literally are holding a potholder and you're talking with your spouse and the person who holds the pothold holder at that time is the one who will be speaking and the other person listens and so when you're finished you hand that over and they in turn will reiterate what you have said to clarify to make sure that what we're talking about is the same thing you know before we head into this conversation and if you as the speaker felt heard then they continue if not you take the potholder back and you restate it in a way that they will understand you know and so you keep doing that type of formula and in the beginning, it is so mechanical and robotic. It's bizarre. You're re really, this is the way I need to be heard. This is the way we're going to have this conversation, just handing this back and forth. But after you do it, it's like exercising a muscle, right? And so when you do anything, when you exercise, it you'll come back home and you'll be sore, but you do your stretches, you soak, you, you do all of those things. You take your vitamins and you go back, do the same exercise. Eventually, that exercise will no longer cause you soreness, right? You will have built it, it will be stronger, and it will actually help other muscles in turn become stronger and less sore. Same thing with using techniques to talk to people. And, and we've used that you know, throughout our marriage. You know, we've been married 18 years, and sometimes we don't have a pot holder next to us. Sometimes it may be lip balm. Sometimes it may be water bottle. But what it signifies to the other person is like, this conversation we're about to have is very important to me and I do need to be heard. Without saying all of that, because I've grabbed the object and they know that signifies something. And so they get in the headspace 
that, okay, they are serious about this conversation. I am now going to prepare myself to listen, to be empathetic, and we're going into this. So it, it prepares your heart and it, not only your mind, but your heart, importantly, to uh, listen to the other person because I love them, because it's important, and because we practiced that technique numerous times, it, it, it no longer is a robotic. It becomes natural. And, you know, it's interesting, thinking of this in a marriage, mm -hmm. in a family, in the larger world, right? That your, your choices are to either, just start with marriage, are either to figure it out and develop these skills or face the consequences of not, which always end up looking ugly. Either we don't talk to each other at all or share anything that's real or we're yelling at each other, mm -hmm. right? And, and so, you know, you, you, we learn these things in our most essential environments, but we may start out with skills that came from our home environment, which might not have been, you know, as, as skilled as we want it to be, as, as positive as we want it to be. So, so you're right, you know, you, you work on this with, where it's safe, hopefully, mm -hmm. and you learn it, and then you can do it in situations that feel more scary mm -hmm. to us, you know? Mm -hmm. And it kind of goes back to talking to our kids. I found this, I found teaching my kids how to manage conversationally, conversation respectfully, you know, within our family to actually be a very huge challenge, one I did not anticipate. You know how when you become a mom, there's a whole bunch of stuff you did not anticipate was going to be hard. Or you didn't find it in a book. <laughs> and you didn't find it in a book, right? <laughs> and one of mine was managing, managing conversation. Maybe that's the wrong word, but trying to help support a healthy dialogue that didn't always go south or become competitive or, you know, uh, shut out the the youngest less able mm -hmm. you know all of that mm -hmm. and that's a good way to put it health having healthy dialogues and it looks different for different people obviously age is a, a, a easy example we don't talk I don't talk to my six-year-old the way I talk to my 11 year old mm -hmm. um, because she can't comprehend certain subject matters so I may use visuals for her I may use her dollies to share the story or to describe what I'm trying to do, or we'll draw pictures. And within that picture, I'm telling her a story that I, I need her to know or a subject matter that I, I want her to learn in a way she understands. So, and with my son, hey, we're gonna go ride our bikes because you like doing physical things. I like doing physical things when I'm having hard conversations. So um, we're gonna do that and we'll have that conversation together in that environment in that realm and I think that's important in when you have conversations with different peers you have to gauge how are we gonna have this conversation how are we gonna have healthy dialogue how is this gonna go the way I talk to my husband is different than I talk to a girlfriend mm -hmm. um, and, and and we can do that in all facets of our life and incorporate race into it um, because that's very important um, and when that becomes normal that's such a word I want to use. Like, I know. I love it, though. It's like normal pause. Like, normal pause is a T-shirt I want to make. <laughs> um, 
just, you know, when it becomes normal, um, you'll see the person of color, but you'll also see the friend that you've made, the relationship that you've made. And that is where the normalcy lies. Um, I'm going to go see my friend. I'm not going to go see my black friend, you know, and and, and not making it a checkbox you need to check off. Um, But something that you want to integrate into the, into your life, into who you are, and foremost for your children, you have, they have to see you implementing these things. They have to see you doing these things, also saying the things um, and not just, you know, inundating them with information, but they have to see the change within you um, and they will follow suit with that. Um, you know, Mike, so one of the things, you know, I love tea um, and I love loose leaf tea drinking it like that with no added sweetener to really um, appreciate the flavors of the herbs and spices that are in that. My children love tea because they've seen me enjoy tea. They've seen me learn about tea. There's a tea house I take my oldest to and he talks, you know, we don't go there often, but he talks about that like we regularly go there on Friday mornings, you know, because I've instilled in him an appreciation for tea, how to drink tea, um, and we have great conversations. So I build into that experience um, an educational factor, but I also build a relational exponent in that, that we are building as mom and son. You know, I am building into that relationship equity with him. I'm giving him um, a broader perspective on um, beverages and it's just tea, you know, that we're speaking of. But within that, you know, I'm creating an experience outside of what I could do at home uh, with him. And he enjoys it and he's able to talk about it and he becomes knowledgeable about it and it becomes normal for him to ask for a cup of tea and know how to drink it, know how to engage with people who drink it, know how to discuss it. And so I chose that topic because it's, it's close to my heart. It's something I enjoy. It's safe. <laughs> um, but that's the same. I see that the same way when I'm introducing a new culture to them, you know, and books are always my go-to uh, in order to educate them. So I fill our house with that, whether I purchase them or borrow them. Um, you know, I had a friend, we had our, um, my father-in-law passed away last year and I had a friend who lives on the street and she immediately came to our home and dropped off children's books that the subject matter was mourning because she had gone through that and I hadn't. Yeah. And so sharing information, sharing, um, uh, you know, literature with one another is another way to do that. And those books were so impactful for us. And so, you know, we read them all. We really um, connected with one and that one we dialogued with. We, we kept it on the table and we talked about, you know, um, later throughout the week, we had discussions with um, about that. And, that wouldn't have happened had I not had community with her um, and, you know, shared with her what we were going through. And, uh, you know, even though she's of a different race, death comes for us all. 
and she can relate to that. Mm -hmm. And that was our tying um, relatable factor. Right. And as a mom um, who loves her children and who also mourned for her parents, she was able to share that with me. And I shared that with my kids. That's where normalcy lies. You see, she didn't say, okay, I'm going to get these books that are specific for this family. No, she got a book that had to do with death. And they were, you know, multicultural. There were, you know, some that were white, you know, and so we read all of them. And it was the one with the white family that we connected with the most um, because they showed, uh, the other ones were like animals <laughs> that were, <laughs> and so our oldest, you know, he thought that was a little too cutesy. Um, and then there was another one where, um, I'm just, it did, just didn't connect with us. And, um, the other one, it just, for some reason, the story is what we connected with. And, um, you know, we shared that with the, our school has a, uh, on-hand psychologist, therapist for the kids, kind of a guidance counselor. Mm -hmm. She's, she's all of those things. And we shared that book with her so that she could put that in her library you know, to, to be able to share with other families. And again, it's because we have that relationship. So we just, we're just passing it on, passing it on to one another. Um, and you have to be willing to, you know, she could have said that, that that's not for us or, you know, that the subject matter, we need it to be this or that, you know, but she was open to receive and I was open to receive as well. So just allowing for that space, and that, that pause. I love so much of what you said about conversation and how we talk to our kids and how we talk to each other, that respectful listening and sharing and choosing to connect um, and try to build normalcy. It's a good challenge for me. I really appreciate your, your time. Really, I do. And I, I've loved I've loved all just talking to you so much. It's been great. So I feel ready to wrap up. Do you? I think Maria and I could do this, you know, every week. We'll become pros at you know, I thank you for the opportunity. You know, by by no means am I an expert. This is my story and I've shared, you know, my experience as a mother. Um, to three beautiful, beautiful children and my life experience. And I just hope that, you know, they hear my heart um, and hear that I just want, you know, I want everyone to become educated. That is probably the driving force of what I do and what I speak for is to become educated. And the more educated you are, the more open your heart will be. Um, to receive, to share, to listen, and to become more empathetic. Um, and, you know, lead with prayer. That's one of the biggest things we do. I, I didn't touch on that as, as much. Um, but leading with prayer, um, because, you know, if God is behind you, you know, it's just you can do so many things um, and in a loving um, and compassionate way. So yeah, my, if I had a banner, it'd be do your research and become educated. Um, if, if not, 
for your children and for who they are to become, you know, because they are the ones that will be, you know, leading what's happening in our current times. So, yeah. 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 Amen to that. Amen to that. Thank you. You're welcome. So apparently I need to ask you to be sure to like us if you enjoyed this podcast, because I guess that matters, me the boomer. Um, and uh, do follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, we are rooted in language. We are all about uh, that learning happens best in relationship. That's actually was um, a big part of my mission in working with kids. I believe that they learn best when they have a relationship with me and they know I care about them. And I believe their care, primary caregiver um, is the one who needs to be, needs to be the biggest helper in their progress. So that was really our mission in Rooted in Language is to try to help uh, parents and educators everywhere um, to help young learners, especially struggling learners in reading and writing. So that's what we're about. And uh, obviously what education means is bigger than, uh, than we sometimes think of it, right? And that's what's our conversation for today. So do follow our podcast and check out our website. And thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Maria. You're welcome.